Hello, Red Sea Catholic Radio listener. I am Caleb Bronner, Director of Radio and Media here at Red Sea Catholic Radio, and your host for this very special episode of Red Sea Roundup. This episode was pre-recorded, but if you're listening live on the radio, then that means it is Ash Wednesday, so make sure you get yourself to church, get some ashes, and be ready to share the love of our Lord and the good news of the gospel with anybody that asks about them. Now buckle up, gentle listener, because today we have a guest you will not want to miss. Our esteemed guest has a master's degree of theological studies from the University of Dallas. He's an award-winning Catholic author. He's a bold, no-nonsense Catholic speaker who speaks all over the world. He's the host of EWTN's brand spanking new show, Beacon of Truth. Today, we have the pleasure to speak with the one, the only, you might know him as the dynamic deacon, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Deacon Harold, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, as you mentioned, it's Ash Wednesday, and that's a, a we kick off our penitential season of Lent. And you know the the ashes. If you it, it comes from Genesis chapter two, the origin. Um, well, it comes from a lot of different places in the Old Testament, but the original one is Genesis chapter two. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the word for dirt, dust, or soil in Hebrew is Adama. So the Adam. Right comes out of the Adama, so the humanity comes out of the dirt, dust, or soil, and so every Ash Wednesday it's a beautiful reminder that uh, that we're not going to live forever, <laughs> that I'm on this earth, right. that right. we're uh, that we're just on pilgrimage here, that this is not really our home, and those ashes are a reminder of the reality that we are going to die, and that we are going to uh, have to face Jesus one day. And uh, so I hope people use this penitential season of Lent to really prepare themselves to meet Jesus uh, intimately and personally, um, not just at the moment of our death, but every single day. Absolutely. Maybe you can clear something up for me. What are you supposed to say? You, you don't say happy Lent. What, what are you, what's the proper uh, greeting between people for the Lenten season? Well, there, there, uh, there is no official greeting, but I just say have a blessed Lent. Oh, that's way better than Happy Lent. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially this year because it's on Valentine's Day. So <laughs> you know, so how do you, yeah. how do you celebrate Valentine's Day on Ash Wednesday? We have to fast and and, right. uh, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah. Hopefully, everybody has done their Valentine's Day date a little early. Maybe coincided with Fat Tuesday, perhaps, and had a real blowout meal. But um, but yeah, uh, I wanted to just go ahead and dive in. Um, I'm a Catholic convert, and so growing up discernment was not a part of my vocabulary. So tell us about your background and uh, your journey to the diaconate. So I was born in Barbados in the West Indies, um, and we're first generation to come to the United States. My father was not a person of faith. My mother uh, was a Methodist who became Catholic as a teenager, and I'm the first uh, child of their marriage. So I'm actually the first baptized Catholic in the history of our family. Um, wow. When we came to the United States, my mom uh, wanted to make sure we had a Catholic education that was so important to her. And so I went to Catholic schools basically my whole life, grade school, high school, uh, college and graduate school, all at Catholic institutions. And um, I remember being nine and 10 years old going to mass and really enjoying going to mass, you know, which is very unusual for a nine or 10 year old. But I remember looking up at the altar thinking, there's something really cool going on up there. I'm not really sure what it is, but I like it. And then I started serving Mass, and it was the first time that I felt that I could be a priest. Um, and uh, then I went to a Benedictine high school, 
and they had a come and see program, which I did all four years of high school. I went off to college, uh, graduated, worked for a year, and then joined the monastery. And I thought, you know, I'm going to be here for the rest of my life. This is what God wants for me. I felt this ever since I was nine or 10. You know, and then my, um, my parents were divorced. When my mom, when my dad left, I helped take care of the family with my mom. And when my mom got sick and almost died, I was given some time out of the monastery to take care of my mom and my sister was still in high school. And I went to a wedding and ended up meeting the woman who would eventually be my wife. <laughs> so God had another wow. plan. So uh, she's from Oregon. So we, when we moved out to Oregon, uh, I dove into parish life, busy doing a bunch of stuff in the parish. It wasn't enough. Discovered the diaconate. And, uh, and I, and I, when I read Lumen Gentium paragraph 29 on um, what a deacon is, and I, I, I said, oh my goodness, that's what I'm supposed to do. And so I, I uh, joined the program, and it's five years, including getting a master's degree from the University of Dallas, and uh, was ordained in, uh, on November 23rd, 2002. And I uh, was in a law enforcement career for, for uh, half of my life, and I left that in 2012 to speak and to write full-time. And so I, not, I travel 250,000 miles a year now all over the world, been to 31 countries, written six books, uh, you know, uh, have nine television series on EWTN, and now my second radio show on the network. So God's been so good. Amen. Yeah. Um, talk more about your experience as a police officer. And um, I worked, I taught at a school for boys that had committed sexual offenses for six years. And um, you see a lot of ugliness in that happens that a lot of people aren't aware of. Um, but you also see some, I, I saw some amazing transformations in some of these kids. You know, they're going to really intense therapy there. Um, how has how was your experience as a police officer? Maybe some of the ugliness, uh, but also maybe some of the um, triumphs you saw, like the things that beat all the odds. How has that affected your faith and maybe your uh, ministry as a deacon? Yeah, so I, I'd say a few things about my law enforcement career. First of all, um, doing drugs and vice, but working undercover, that's always interesting. You know, uh, that's when you see the seedy side of life, and uh, you know, and, and some people would question that. Well, you, you know, you had to lie. Well, yeah. I mean, I had to lie in order to get drugs off the street and, and keep people from dying. Uh, yeah. You know, so, uh, right. uh, it wasn't anything that was going to lose someone's soul or anything like that. Um, and, but then I got into, uh, uh, law enforcement working with, with kids in the Salem Kaiser school district first, when I first moved to Oregon and then at the university of Portland where I work with college students. Um, and, and so, that experience was awesome because, uh, you know, especially for college kids, I mean, their, their adult clothes are too big for them. You know, they're 18. Yeah. They, they just discovered adulthood. So they have to spend four years learning how to fit into those clothes. And, and as they try to do that, they're going to make mistakes. And so I saw our job is not treating them like suspects or perpetrators, but rather um, learning from the classroom of real life. They're going to learn from the classroom and get a, a, an academic education, but in interactions with my officers, I wanted them to learn from the classroom of real life. I just made a big mistake with alcohol or drugs or sex. And, you know, I, I need to take responsibility for that now and learn how to deal with this now. 
uh, before I make a mistake after I graduate from here that's going to cost me a job or a family or reputation. You know, so I saw our officers as really helping our students to grow and, and to develop into not just um, smart kids, but kids that are going to go out there and truly try to become the people who God created them to be. You know, that's the second thing. And the third thing I would say with regard to the violence uh, that we saw uh, during the pandemic with George Floyd and all of that, and right. all the you know, police officers, you know, defund the police, that's absolutely ridiculous. Because uh, mm-hmm. when you defund the police, who are you going to call? When, when someone has yeah. a gun to your wife's head, you're going to call Ghostbusters? Oh, come on, give me a break. So here, here's the problem. When you're, one of the things they, they don't do in the, acad- in the academies is, is to identify bias. So for example, when you're when they're in traffic stop school, when you're learning how to do a, a safe traffic stop, um, you're, you're learning uh, and employing techniques that are going to keep that officer safe. But what you're not... T- what you have to identify is the person that walks up to that uh, window and, and is thinking in his head, oh, this person's black or Hispanic. I got to be really careful because they could kill me. Well, guess what? Anybody sitting in that front seat can kill you. You know, right. I mean, so, so, so we, we have to identify bias and prejudice within individuals. Um, we have to do a much better, well, we, I'm not there anymore, but uh, <laughs> our, the police academies have to do a much better job doing that. Um, and once they identify that that individual with the bias, there's two things that need to happen. One, they need to uh, help that person deal with that, um, and come recognize that within themselves, and learn how to effectively deal with it, um, or get them out of there. Simple as that. Simple um, as that. Yeah. And, and the more we can do that, the, the more we'll we'll see less and less of these incidents. Now, I myself, when I was a chief. Um, you know, I had an FTO that, I'm oh, sorry, field training officer that did most <laughs> of the training for my officers, but I wanted to make sure I did some of the training myself, um, uh, uh, particularly um, verbal de-escalation techniques. Uh, so that's always the first line of defense is listening, yeah. right? And being right. able to talk. Yeah. I, want, I wanted my officers to see this is a human being made in God's image and likeness. Of course, I couldn't use that language, but, but made in God's image and likeness. So this person right now is in a situation where they're hurting, they're in pain, there's something going wrong. And when you show up, you know, you know, they, they think, oh, you're the person that's going to hear to make things worse. No, sometimes what we need to do, the best thing we can do is just listen, just let them vent, oh, let yeah. them get out whatever's on their chest. And mm-hmm. then once they've, you know, once they do it, they start to calm down. Now we can effectively deal with the situation. So, you know, um, 100%. of course you have to keep officer safety and you have to watch people's hands and, and those kinds of things. But, um, you know, so that's a little few uh, commentaries I would make about my, my career. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I totally get you about, you know, sometimes you have to let the kid just cuss you out. Uh, like in my experience, let them get it out of their system. Be like, okay, are you ready to move on and talk about what's really the matter? Um, and things like that. Yeah, no, I totally, uh, it's a great way to, um, grow in patience. That's for sure. Um, yeah, because you can't take it personally. You know, right. um, what, I, what I wanted my officers to, to, in the situation like that, was to hear, I'm hurting, please help me. You know, right. I'm lost, please show me the way. Because when you deal with somebody, you, you never see the beauty of the humanity in that person. I'll give you an example. We had a guy once um, who was, who was, looks like he was living in his car. And so a student, students were walking by, they see this guy in his car, they said, hey, we don't feel safe, this guy's in his car, I don't know what his deal is. And so I had my sergeant and another officer respond, and they ended up bringing the guy to the office. And so I, I heard the call over the radio, so I went out there to, to see. 
And uh, you know, they asked permission to search his bag. Obviously, they didn't want to see if any weapons in there. So there, he 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 was very nice. He allowed them to do that. And so in the bag, they found a pad and some uh, uh some like writing pencils. And I said, "Oh, what's that for?" He said, "Well, I'm an artist." He goes, "I, I like to draw pictures." And so he pulled out some of the pictures, like postcard size, of the of scenery and things that he drew. It was beautiful. I'm like, yeah. "Oh, come on, man! You didn't do that." He goes, "Yeah, that's I. I did that." I said, "No, man! It, someone that's like that draws like this should not be living in their car. What's going on?" And so he explained that when he came to uh, Oregon, uh, he was living with his brother. And uh, his brother uh, was abusive to his wife. And so when he called his brother out on it, his brother threw him out. And then he lost his job because he was the one of the last ones hired. And when they cut back, he was one of the first ones let go. Hmm. And so he had, he, he had no place to live but in his car. And the reason why he was at the university, he is a soccer fan. Uh, at that time, we were ranked in the, in the top five in, in women's soccer. Division one women's soccer. He had season tickets. So he was just there waiting for the game to start. And so I was like, wait a minute. And so I said, okay, hold on. So two things happened. First of all, I, you know, I told him he couldn't park there. Uh, although he was on a city street, you know, I made the kids nervous. So we gave him some alternatives. And then I gave him a place where he can go and get a shower and, you know, maybe they can help him find a job and things like that. And then I commissioned him to draw a picture for me. You know, and so I said, you know, I, I was a monk. I lived in a monastery. You know, what I'd love to see is like a beautiful, like monastery on a hill, like in France or someplace like that. Do you think you can, you know, draw? I said, well, how big do you want it to be? I said, I want it big enough where I can frame it and put it on my wall, in my office and show people, you know, he said, seriously. I said, yeah. And, and I said, don't, I said, once you finish it, tell me how much you, you, you know, you'll charge me for it. Don't, don't worry about the cost right now. And he said, cool. And he got to work on it. And I actually have the picture right here that he, I don't know if you can you probably can't see that with the lights and stuff on the camera, but oh, uh, on, on YouTube, you can see this. There's a, a picture, a little fuzzy, but oh, that's wow. the yeah, picture yeah. that he drew. And I've, I had that framed and I had it put on my wall in my office. He, he hand drew that. That's with pencil. That's, that's it. See, this wow. is what happens when you look at someone and you right. see what God sees when they look at that person. You know, beautiful yeah. things like like this can happen. Yeah. What are some ways that you can practice doing that in your everyday life? Yeah, like, it's easy to talk about that. See Jesus and others. Be Jesus to others. But like, what are some things that maybe you've done in your own life to actually like uh, take that and really put it into practice and really do it intentionally in your everyday life? Well, one of the things you have to do is to identify any prejudices or biases that you have within yourself, because that's going to mm. affect the way that you deal with someone else. So in my book, my latest book uh, called Building a Civilization of Love, A Catholic Response to Racism, I make a distinction between prejudice and racism. Okay. So, um, so uh, prejudice is making a preconceived notion about someone not based on any factual knowledge or, or subjective experience. Okay. But maybe your maybe some of the uh, experiences you had with people that look like them or act like them in the past or something. See, and, and that and that caused you to have a stereotype or a bias about right. that particular group of people. Right. That's different than racism. Racism right. is that with the added piece, the reason why I just said that to you, the reason why I believe this is I believe my race is superior to your race. That's right. racism. 
So, but what you're talking, what we're talking about now is like prejudice or bias. And so what you have to do is recognize those things within yourself. I remember going into an elevator once and I was dressed in a suit and a tie. I had my uh, crucifix, miraculous metal on. And the woman in the elevator backed up and grabbed her purse. You know, <laughs> as soon as I walked in, she was scared. Now, I totally get that she may be, she had maybe was experiencing post-traumatic stress syndrome. She, she may have had a traumatic incident that happened to her. Um, maybe even a person of color did something to her and, and now she has this fear. I totally get that. Um, uh, but it still hurts, right? <laughs> it, when, right? When you're on the receiving end of something like that, it still hurts regardless of what her situation might be. So I didn't, I wasn't really angry. The only part that upset me a little bit was when she grabbed her purse. Like, I'm going to rob her in the elevator. I mean, I could, I could see her being afraid because maybe PTSD or maybe when you, you know, when you're in a confined space with mm-hmm. a stranger, it gets a little uncomfortable, right? We've all experienced right. that you get to the elevator, then someone else gets in the elevator and you're just like, Ooh, they're a little too close to me right now. You know, I, I get all that, you know? So, um, so we have to identify those things within ourselves and, and be very honest about what that is and how is this affecting me seeing Jesus Christ in the person standing in front of me. I mean, the quintessential example of how to do this well is, is Mother Teresa, St. Teresa of Calcutta. Here's someone who worked with lepers, worked with people with uh, um, syphilis and all different uh, AIDS and um, all different kinds of horrible diseases. They were literally dying on the streets in pools of their own urine amidst the, the, the garbage and, and, and the, the clutter on the streets. And she picked them up and she brought them, her nuns brought them back to the hospice and they cared for them so that they could experience God's love before they actually went to meet Jesus when they died. That's, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that we need to be doing. You know, um, uh, looking at someone and seeing what God sees when he looks. And that, and that takes work. And, and, and very honestly, like I said, once you recognize that within yourself, like I would love someone to come up to me and say, you know what, Deacon, you know, for some reason when I'm around black or Hispanic people, I get nervous. It's so stupid. I don't even know why I feel that way. I mean, I have friends of mine who are black, but yet I still kind of feel this. Can, can we talk about that? Yes. You know, because it's honest. It's honest. And, and by talking yeah. about it and, and, and empathizing and entering into someone's experience, now I think you'll be able to work on those biases and begin to see people um, for who they are, not just by color or race or, or ethnicity. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it takes a lot of, I guess, humility and courage to kind of dig down into yourself and see that. Um, yeah, because what is yeah. humility? Humility is not thinking less of yourself; it's thinking of yourself less. That that's right. what true humility is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually to switch gears a little bit, I had this, this, there's been something kind of on my heart and on, in my thoughts a lot lately. Um, I recently read St. Louis de Montfort's letter to the friends of the cross. And, um, in that, and he talks about they need to, how they need to pray for the wisdom of the cross. And, um, even, the thought of praying to God for the wisdom of the cross makes my flesh tremble. <laughs> but, but um, how do we have the courage or how can we grow in the courage 
uh, to humble ourselves and do that. Seek the wisdom of the cross. Maybe you could talk about what is the wisdom of the cross? Um, and, and then also like, how do we do that? How do we overcome our, our fears and the trepidation of, um, <laughs> the, and or how do, how do we become willing to, um, suffer the way that Christ did? How do we become, uh, how do we grow in the fortitude to resist sin to the point of shedding blood? Yeah. So, uh, first of all, that's happening right now with our brothers and sisters uh, who are di literally dying for their faith. Uh, there's a, a number of countries on the continent of Africa where we're seeing that. We're seeing that in China uh, under the communist regime. We're seeing that in India under the caste system where churches are literally being burned and people are dying for their faith. We saw this in Mexico. Um, you know, so like uh, uh, Miguel Pro was one of the saints that mm -hmm. came out of that that whole thing. The Cristero so we're Wars. Still, so we're still dealing with this. And in the United States, we're dealing with it right now in a dry martyrdom, so to speak. Deplatforming, um, uh, coming under social constructs, being forced um, to use pronouns to call men women and women men. Um, we're we're uh, uh, the cancel culture where our voices are being canceled. Where they talk about religious freedom and they talk about diversity, but but that that's only people that agree with you. Well, guess what? That's not that's not diversity. That's agreement, right? So we're we're yeah. seeing all those kinds of things happening. And but what? And so we have to, we have to deny our sufferings to the sufferings of Christ on the cross. Well, what is the cross ultimately? The cross is the meaning of love. Jesus Christ Himself says. No greater love than one has than to lay down his life for his friends, you know, uh, and, and that's what Jesus did. He he conquered death because what what is it about the cross that's so powerful? Yes, it, it's, it's it's a combination of looking at like, oh my goodness, that's one of the most horrific deaths that anyone could ever die, could ever experience at the time of Christ was crucifixion, because um, they not only wanted to maximize the pain, he was crucified naked. Because they, they also want to maximize the embarrassment. They want to strip you of every ounce of human dignity that you had left was taken from you. And that's what the cross symbolizes. But it also symbolizes Jesus uh, getting ready to overcome and conquer death. Because remember, uh, in the garden, uh, the worst effect of sin was death. It, it, you know, If you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will die. Not, not I'm going to kill you because God's very I'm not the God of the dead. I'm the God of the living. But death, mavet in Hebrew, or orthonotos in Greek, means to cut yourself off from the life of God, right? Cut your, so death means to cut yourself off from God's life. So when we look at the cross, sometimes Protestants will say, because I wear a crucifix, so they'll say, uh, you guys keep Christ on the cross. You guys keep Christ on the cross. He's not on the cross anymore. He's with the Father. And I say, amen. But what does Moses say in Psalm 90? Our span is 70 years or 80 for those who are strong. And most of these are emptiness and pain. They pass swiftly and we are gone. Most of life is the cross. So the cross is a reminder to us that that is not the end. That pain and suffering and death is not the end. But it's the vehicle that we need to enter into in order to get to eternal life, life forever with God, because Christ conquered death 
uh, when, when he died and then rose from the dead. He conquered death on the cross. And so the cross for me is not something that's scary. What, is, what does Paul say? I preach Christ and Christ crucified. He says in Galatians, right. I want to know nothing except the cross of Jesus Christ. Right? And he says, I've, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. See, so the, the cross is a vehicle to love, it's a vehicle to salvation. And so when we're suffering on earth, we have to realize that Christ suffered immeasurably more than we will ever suffer. He took all of that with him on the cross so that he could redeem it. So he could redeem our pain. He could redeem our suffering. He can find meaning in pain that seems to us to be meaningless. Because here's the thing about suffering, and this is why we can't accept assisted suicide, we can't accept euthanasia, we can't accept uh, uh, in, in vitro fertilization, all of these, are, uh, abortion, of course, all these are the taking of innocent human life. What's the principle? The principle is, is, is this. Um, it's not about avoiding suffering that we find meaningless. It's about finding meaning in the suffering that's unavoidable. That's the key, finding meaning in the suffering that's unavoidable. And, and, and this goes back to, and I'm philosophizing here, but it please, goes back to please. the principle, the classic understanding of what it means to exist, right? So you, you have what's called teleology. So mm -hmm. uh, there's a purpose and a meaning and an order to our existence. There's a reason why we're here. There's a reason why we exist. There's a reason why God put us here at this particular time and this particular place. Why was I born 50 plus years ago? Why was I born this year? If there's yeah. a reason God has a plan. Right. And so what we have to do is, is unite our lives to what God's will is for us, right? When your will and God's will are one, now you're free, truly free to become the person who God created you to be. And so in that same way, you unite our wills. We have to unite our will to the will of Christ, which also entails suffering. Every single person is going to suffer. There's no question. There's no doubt about it. Even our Lord Jesus Christ himself suffered. We heard at the foot of the cross, the Blessed Mother, we, we, we heard Simeon say that uh, the, uh, a sword will pierce your own soul so that the thoughts of many hearts may be laid there. So we can find solace in the cross by laying our hearts through the pierced soul of the Blessed Virgin Mary and next to her most immaculate heart is another way we can bring ourselves, uh, unite ourselves more closely and intimately to Christ on the cross. And of course, the final way, well, of, not, not the final way, like it, uh, absolute, but another way is at the holy sacrifice of the mass. Why? When we're at mass, we are at the foot of the cross. We are because there's the same blood that flowed from the cross on that first Good Friday is the same blood that we receive in the holy sacrifice of the Mass, body, blood, soul, divinity. So if we keep those things in mind, again, then we'll we will again find meaning in the suffering that is unavoidable. Yeah. Amen. Um I think a lot of people don't know that what you're doing at Mass is participating in the sacrifice. Um, and that's, when I learned that, I, I had this question, I couldn't figure it out. I had asked priests and confession and all over the place. Um, you know, people say things like, you know, you, you're, having, you're having some sort of suffering in your life or in your family, and they'll say, offer it up. 
<laughs> and I was just like, what does that mean? I get it like, like in an abstract sense, but like, what does that look like? And it wasn't until I discovered a, um, the little soldier's missile from, I think, World War II, and it had a mass prayer clock in it so that you could see wherever you were on the battlefield, where mass was being said at that time of day, and you could offer your intentions and your suffering of that sacrifice at that mass, wherever it was in the world. And that's when I started to realize that that's what we're doing at mass. You know, we're, and so now I say, you know, I usually pray to myself, um, you know, I usually say something along the lines of, you know, God, I offer you everything that I am, everything that I have, all of my virtues, all of my vices, I offer it to you. And that has made so much of a difference in being present at that sacrifice and knowing what I'm doing at the sacrifice of the mass. Um, and yeah, I'm glad you spoke on uh, suffering because I think it is a lot, there are a lot of people who come into the church because um, like Dr. David Anders' wife talks about how uh, he, or he's talked about her, how she said that, um, that when she spoke with a priest, he explained to her how her suffering has meaning. And I think a lot of us know that intellectually, but what does that look like in my everyday life? What does that look like in practice for my suffering to have meaning? Um, yeah, because that's really so, hard. I mean, not not. Uh, if you think about this for a second. Um, you're going through a, a really horrible divorce. Now you're thinking back to your wedding day. The day you got married was probably the most beautiful day of your life, and you're thinking about you know that day and 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 you know maybe the first few months or year at, in, into the marriage. And all of a sudden you fast forward 10, 15, 20 years later, and you're in a place where you never thought you would ever be in your married life. And the only thing that seem, even seems possible is divorce, right? Or, or you're in chronic pain. You wake up every day in pain. You live every day in pain. You go to bed every day in pain. You know you're going to wake up the next day and go through it again, day after day, month after month. You know, um, and, and, or you, you lose a child. You know, you lose it. One of the, 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 the most difficult in 21 years ordained, the most difficult homily I've ever given was for a five month old baby. Um, that was so hard. And, and even for me, because having kids myself and then seeing how small the casket was, was just, just, I'm like, oh my goodness. And so, and I lost my best friend 19 years ago. I lost my, my best friend. We were uh, best friends in grade school, high school. We were best men. He was my best man at my wedding. I was the best man at his wedding. He died of cancer uh, at 38 years old and left behind two small kids. You know, it's just like, why? Like, what? what's the purpose in that? You know, right. and in the scenarios I just described, what's, what's God's purpose in that? You know, St. Thomas Aquinas says that God does not allow uh, a suffering to happen unless a greater good can come out of it. Well, what greater good could come out of anything I just said? Any of those scenarios? Because while you're in it, you can't see what God sees as, as you're going through that situation. Because it's like a book. We're living the book page by page. We know what came before. We don't know what's coming next. God wrote the book. He knows the beginning. Mm -hmm. He knows the middle. And he knows how it's going to end. And everything ends in, in God's purpose and in God's will. So we just have to trust. And it's hard. 
It is so hard when you're suffering, no matter what that suffering is, to trust God in that moment. How how do you trust God? How do you even love God in the midst of suffering? Because if God loved me, I wouldn't suffer. That's when we need to look to the cross. It's because of love that Jesus suffered. That's that's the point that we miss um, when, when we uh, when we look at, when we uh, uh, think about suffering and and uniting that suffering to the cross. Oh man, yeah, no, I uh, I love what you said about um, the analogy of the book. Um, that's something I kind of uh, went through, I guess, almost two years ago now. Um, I my wife has some illnesses and decided that we needed to move to be closer to her family for the help with our children. Um, and so I gave up a job that I liked. Okay. Um, but I could, I could be a part of a community at that school and it was going well. Um, and then I moved here to college station, no job. We moved in with her parents, couldn't find a job for a year. Um, finally found a teaching job, hated it. And I remember speaking, um, in kind of like a spiritual direction with a priest, I'm being like, I know that God's not just like transactional. I know it's not, you sacrifice this, you get, you, you sacrifice X, you get Y. I know it's not like that, but I've took this leap of faith. I've, I'm doing these things and nothing's coming from it. I'm just sitting here and just like frustrated with these sacrifices I've made and no, nothing is good has come from it. Little did I know, I just had to wait a little bit longer. Uh, <laughs> one St. Andrew's Christmas novena later, I found this job that I love so much. We found the perfect house right down the street from her parents' house. And so it's a perfect situation. Uh, we got pregnant. We've had, we have another beautiful baby, another boy. Um, while I was in it, I couldn't see it. Looking back though, I can see God's hand in all of it. and. Um, I wonder if enough, if people make a habit of looking back on their life and intentionally looking for God's hand in their life, um, and, and seeing God's hand, uh, his providence moving through the life. It makes me think of, um, in Lord of the Rings, are you a Lord of the Rings fan? Oh, I, I'm familiar with the films. Yeah. Okay. Well in the book, um, uh, Tom Bombadil rescues them when they're in the swamps and the, he rescues them. And uh, Frodo says, um, did you hear us calling or, you know, why, why did you come save us? And he says, um, uh, or, or he says, or did you just happen by? And he says, oh, well, I didn't hear you calling, but I just happened by if you want to call it that. And what he seems to be hinting at is he didn't just, it wasn't just coincidence that brought him there. He's referring to the providence of God brought him there to help them out. And I think that um, all too often we're too close to situations and we can't see the hand of God working in our lives. So, um, so how do we do that? How do we, what would you recommend on how to look back on our lives and see God's hand moving through our life? Yeah, we well, hit on an important principle. Um, God works in his time and God's timing is always perfect. It's not our time. Sometimes we just have to wait on God you know, and, and let and allow God to work. That's what he's doing. He's setting up things behind the scenes that we can't see to make possible his will in our life. And so while that's happening, it could take weeks, months, years. 
we have to trust that God is continually working uh, in our lives. And you're right. When you look backward perspective, now you can see, oh, that makes perfect sense. Like, for example, I thought for a long time, why did God give me this desire as a nine-year-old, 10-year-old, put me in a monastery just to have me leave? What was the mm-hmm. purpose of that? Now I look back and say, ah, you know what? It was in a monastery where I learned love for devotions, love for silence, love for praying the office every day, love for liturgy. You know, uh, that's where I learned all of that. And so it laid a foundation in my life that to this day, I draw from that every single day of my life, especially when I'm on the road, right? Let's starting here. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm going to be on the road for three weeks, you know? Um, and so how do you, people say, how do you do that? You know, it's, it's, it's the discipline of prayer, of fasting, of uh, devotions, of uh, always keeping uh, my relationship with God in the forefront of my mind and doing the things that are going to allow me to, to stay in intimate, personal, loving, and life-giving communion with Him. When I look back on, because um, I never thought I'd be married. Now I'm married. I got kids and stuff. It's like, wow, I never thought that was going to happen. You know, <laughs> and, and you look back with perspective. Ah, oh, that makes perfect sense because one of the things God wanted me to talk about was marriage and family, especially since my parents are divorced. They did not have a good marriage. You know, how, what, who am I to talk about marriage and family life? Well, God wanted me to use my experiences from my own family growing up and my experiences now with my own family and to use that as a vehicle to talk in a way about, fa- about family life. Um, obviously, the model being the Holy Family, but even right. the Holy Family wasn't, um, wasn't, uh, uh, protected or preserved from the realities and the harshness of family life. You know, Joseph finds out his wife is pregnant. He's not the father being, um, uh, being born in a stable, you know, having to, to go to another country to escape Herod, you know, then Joseph's death. And then, you know, a mother watching her own child die and she can't do anything about it. I mean, all of that, they were not spared the hardships of family life. So they do serve as a model for families today. You know, and I look back with yeah. perspective too, leaving my career and going to speak and write full time. That was scary. Like, God, yeah, what what are you doing? Why are you, you, you mean another Deacon Harold, not me. You mean somebody <laughs> else, you know? And I tried to talk God out of it. I, you know, it was crazy. But once I submitted myself to his will and I, and I look back now and say, oh, what was I afraid of? What was I so mm-hmm. scared of? Yeah. But when you're and going so, through, yeah, we yeah, need to take I that. Did, I had to trust. And it was my yeah. wife that helped me get through. We need to remember that. Remember when we're in times of trouble and suffering. Oh, remember when I looked back and I saw God's hand? Let me trust that that's happening right now too. Yes. Um, I would I would be remiss if I didn't ask you. We have about two minutes left. I Tell us about Beacon of Truth. What's the idea behind huh. it? What are we talking about on Beacon of Truth? Tell us all, everything about it. Yeah, so that's my new radio show on EW10, the Global Catholic Radio Network. And basically what it's about it's about what I've seen traveling around. People are seriously disconnected from their faith. And there's a disconnect between faith and the everyday lived experience. And truth is being confused. We're, we're confused in our culture today about what marriage is, what gender is, what life means. And so people are finding themselves just upset and, and angry and, and they don't know what to do. Well, I want to focus on how a, a deep, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ can lead us to the truth. Because truth is what? Not a philosophy. Truth is a person. Jesus Christ says, mm, I yeah. am the way, the truth, not a truth, the truth the and the truth. life. 
And once we enter into that, the truth of, of our existence and life with Christ, we can become, uh, that truth will set us free to become the person who God created us to be. So that's what we're trying to do in the show. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm really excited about it. We are playing it here on Red Sea Catholic Radio. We are recording it and then playing it the next morning at 6 a.m. So you early birds getting up, going to the gym. This is the perfect thing to listen to while you're having your morning coffee, getting ready for work. Please turn it on. Uh, Beacon of Truth on Red Sea Catholic Radio. You can find it on EWTN. You can find it on the Red Sea Catholic Radio app. Uh, you're on. You're streaming live on YouTube in the afternoons. At what time? In it's the afternoon. A one one Pacific, uh, three Central, four Eastern. Okay, yeah. So uh, if you want to catch it live, then check it out on YouTube or um, where where else can they find it on online live? I think it's streaming on EWTN's Facebook Live page as okay. well. Okay, perfect. Yeah, get on there. Get in the live chat. Uh, I think they're taking you're taking questions from the live chat and comments, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So get in there and uh, interact with uh, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. And, um, you know, thank you so much for coming on. Will you close us out with a blessing? Sure. May Almighty God bless you and keep you the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Deacon Harold. Thank you thank so you much for joining us on Red Sea Catholic Radio's Red Sea Roundup. And remember, when considering the values of heaven and earth, always round up. Thank you so much.